Would you open up in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3? Throughout the season of Advent, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And today we come to Exodus chapter 3, uh, which is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament and really the entire Bible. If you had to rank uh, the important passages, this would certainly make the top five of, of, of key passages for understanding who God is and how he works. This is an epochal event, one of the, the pinnacles of God's self-revelation. Over the course of church history, more has probably been written about verse 14 alone, which we won't get to today, than any other verse of the Bible. And that being said, I could really do a whole sermon series just through this chapter. And in fact, I had to cut, last night I had to cut the sermon in half because I, I just there's too much here. It's too rich. So uh, we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 10. And then we'll be focusing on central themes here for the sake of time and, and progress. So let's pray, and then we'll turn to the text. Father, we come to you today as a people who recognize your power and your mercy in revealing yourself to us. Father, you have every right to stand above us and to hide from us, but instead you write your law in our hearts. You reveal to yourself to us in nature, and most importantly, you reveal yourself to us by your word. So, Father, today as we come to your word, you teach us to respond in faith to your promises? Would you teach us to respond in repentance to your law? And would you teach us to cling by faith to Christ, your Son, whom you sent to save us? Father, press these truths deep into our hearts that we may serve you and glorify you better. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side or the back side, the far side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. It's interesting that this event, the burning bush, for generations has been a symbol of churches, particularly Reformed and Presbyterian churches like ours, for generations. The motto of the French Reformed Church, it's in Latin, but the English is, I am burned, but not consumed. The motto of the Church of Scotland is, yet it was not consumed. Presbyterian Church in Ireland, burning but flourishing. And the burning bush is found in seals of Presbyterian churches around the world. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, Singapore, Brazil, Malaysia, and I could go on. For brothers and sisters, for Christians around the world who share our confession, it's a powerful image because it reminds us of God's grace. Our God is a consuming fire, but in Christ we are able to stand unconsumed. In this image, we recall the fiery furnace of Daniel and the men who, standing with God, were unafraid of the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar because they knew that they stood righteous in God's judgment. In Christ, the heat of God's judgment is not consuming, it's purifying. It makes us holy. But the flames of the burning bush provide more than just heat, they also provide light. There's another Reformation slogan that reflects this uh, element of God's fire. It's post-tenebrous lux. After darkness, light. God's fire is sanctifying But it's also revelatory. It tells us who God is. It shows us our path. When God enters into our world, the darkness flees. By the way, that's all over the story of Jesus' birth. As we read through Luke, we'll hear of uh, Simeon's song, and we'll hear him refer to Jesus as the light that lightens the Gentiles. In Matthew, we, we read of wise men who followed a star. A burning light in the sky that led them to Christ. And perhaps most apt today, we read of shepherds, much like Moses, who see a great light of angels proclaiming Christ's birth. When God enters into the world, he brings heat and he brings light. He brings purification and he brings revelation. But why? After the fall, man is wrapped up in sin. It drives down to the depth of our being. As Genesis reminds us, every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil continually. And so why would a holy God enter into this world, this broken world, this fallen world to redeem it? He has every right and even a responsibility to destroy us for our sin. But instead, he gives us his son in our place. Why? It's because of his mercy. Today's scripture describes that mercy. This passage shows us that God's mercy is unconditional, complete, and mediated. God's mercy is unconditional, complete, and mediated. Now, once again, there's there's a lot in this passage that we can talk about. 
But I want to focus specifically on this speech that God gives, which is what's, what's happening in this passage is you have Moses speaking, God speaking. It's a dialogue. And there's this speech in verses 7 through 10 that I want to focus on today. Before we get there, just to set the stage a little bit, you should know that there's a 40-year gap between Exodus 2 and Exodus 3, which makes Moses about 80 years old. For 40 years, he's been a Midian, and for all intents and purposes, he is a Midianite. In chapter 2, he was rejected by the Hebrews, he was rejected by the Egyptians, but he was accepted by this family who were in, in the land of Midian. His wife is a Midianite. His children are Midianites. And so he, for all intents and purposes, is a Midianite. But not only is he cut off from Israel, not only is he cut off from his natural people, he's also wandering in the wilderness. Verse 1 tells us that he is at Horeb, which later will be called Mount Sinai. And if you don't know where that is, verse 1 also gives us this interesting line. It says that he's in the backside of the desert, the far side, or some translations say the west. That's, that's equivalent to what we would say the middle of nowhere. He is in the middle of nowhere. He's a long way from Midian, and he's a long way from anywhere else. If you look at a map, Horeb is at the end of the Sinai Peninsula. He's in the wilderness. And it's there, in the wilderness, cut off from his people, that God appears to him. And you may have caught this already, but verse 2 actually says that the angel of the Lord appeared in the bush. And that's used interchangeably with Lord in this passage, which indicates that we're probably actually dealing with Jesus himself. That's a Christophany. Christophany. This is the Son of God appearing to Moses before he comes in the flesh. And so as Moses is wandering deep in the wilderness, Jesus, the Son of God, appears to him in a fiery flame. He brings heat and light And he makes the very ground that Moses is standing on holy. And it's in this context, out of the fiery flame, that he gives revelation of himself to Moses. So let's consider his words. First, God's mercy is unconditional. After their initial interaction, God, in the the form of the Son of God, begins to speak to Moses with these words. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And their cry I have heard from before their oppressors, for I know their pain. Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, this language will be familiar. This seeing and hearing language is already repeated in the Exodus narrative. We get it with Pharaoh's daughter, and we get it with God in the end of chapter 2. But we also get the idea of knowledge at the end of verse 7, for I know their pain. Pharaoh did not know Joseph, did not know God's people, but God does. But I want to focus on one little connecting word in verse 7. Listen to verse 7 one more time. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and their cry I have heard from before their oppressors, for I know their pain. Did you catch that? Why does God see and hear his people? Because he knows them. That's something we see time and time again in Scripture. To borrow language from our confession of faith, that God saves us not because of anything worked in us or done by us, but for Christ's sake alone. 
He isn't looking forward in time to see if you have faith. He's not measuring your good works. He's not interested in your strength or your power. If that were the case, then we'd all be in trouble. But just as the Israelites were oppressed by Egypt, so we are oppressed by sin. And in fact, we have it even worse because we're dead in sin. No, the basis, the only basis for our salvation is that God knows us. He saves us because of the promises that he made to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. He saved us because he promised to bless the nations through Abraham, to call a people his own. Now, that's something that we struggle with in our human nature, because our entire world is conditional, even when we say it's not. Even the mercy that we extend to our neighbors so often has, has strings attached. And we even have sayings like, everything happens for a reason. There are conditions attached to everything. But our salvation is not like that. God really does save us just because. Just because he can. He doesn't gain anything by saving us. He doesn't owe us anything. No, he only saves us for the simple fact that he has decided to do it. And the promise is passed down to us through the generations who have heard it, beginning with Adam himself. He didn't have to do it. Now, there's a poignant illustration of this in the Gospels. When the rich young ruler comes before Jesus, he asks, he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him what I think to our ears is a really odd answer. He tells the man to sell everything he has. Now, his point is not that salvation comes by way of a vow of poverty. If that were the case, then we'd all be in trouble. No, his, his point is that you can never do enough. The young man was asking the wrong question. You can't do anything to have eternal life. So the question then for you is, is what are you doing to save yourself? Some of us seek salvation in health fads, self-help books, Others are just trying to make sure that the good outweighs the bad, and then maybe that'll be enough. Even others are looking for some mystical experience to validate our faith. But God isn't interested in any of that. What he is interested in, what he is listening for, is our weeping. Do you know that you can't save yourself? Do you cry out and suffering under your sin? If so, that's what provokes God to saving action, is our tears and repentance over our sin. So don't look to yourself, but look to his unconditional, unmerited, perfect mercy. God's mercy is unconditional. Second, God's mercy is complete. Look at verse 8. God says, I have come down to save them from the hand of Egypt and to bring them up from that land to a land good and large, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, it would have been a great act of mercy for God to simply get the people out of Egypt. He could have stopped at any point in this redemption. As they crossed the Red Sea, he could have, he could have said, well, this is enough. You're out of Egypt, you're free from slavery, and so now you need to go forge your own way. But he didn't. There's an additional promise. A land flowing with milk and honey. 
He tells them that he'll take them to the land of the Canaanites and he'll give it to them. In other words, he's not just saving them from Egypt. He's saving them to the promised land. He's saving them from Egypt to Canaan. A lot of times we think that God's mercy is primarily about plucking us out of hell. But in fact, it's so much more than that. We sang this earlier. Joy to the world. The third verse says, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And how far is that? Well, certainly just as he saved Israel from Egypt. So he saves us from the penalty of sin, from the punishment of sin. But he also saves us from the power of sin and the presence of sin. To use theological language, we're not only justified, we're also sanctified. We're not just saved from sin, we're saved to flourishing. The promise of salvation is not a promise that we'll avoid hell. It's a promise that we will flourish and grow and be fruitful. In the new covenant, the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey comes to us as a promise that God's people, who are themselves the promised land, will flourish in abundance. God's mercy is not a, it's not a one and done thing. As if you just, you just ask for forgiveness and then move on with your life. No, it's, it's everlasting and it's steadfast. God comes down to save us both from sin and save us to sanctification. One of, one of the great dangers of our day is easy believism. For many, the gospel is just a card to punch. I walked the aisle, I said the prayer, so I'm good. But that's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel means that your whole life is renewed. It means that your heart of stone is removed and replaced by a heart of flesh. And so the question is whether that is true for you. Do you look to the fullness of salvation that God offers? Or are you just fleeing from some hypothetical judgment that may or may not be out there? You're not really sure, but you're just trying to make sure that you don't experience it. Is your heart being continually softened to be fruitful in the spirit? Or is it callous to God's law? If your Christianity is just a box that you check every 10 years on the census, God calls you to so much more. And he offers you so much more. He invites you to be changed and renewed from the inside out if you'll only trust him to do it. He doesn't just offer you partial mercy. No, his mercy, God's mercy is complete and full. Third, God's mercy is mediated. Look at verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression that Egypt oppressed them with. And now come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, from Egypt. Now, I mentioned this a little bit with the kids, but if you think about it, that's pretty strange. For some reason, God has deemed it appropriate to speak to Moses directly in the wilderness. But when it comes to the redemption of his people, he sends Moses as a representative. There are any number of ways that that God could have saved Israel and redeemed them from the slavery in Egypt. He could have changed Pharaoh's heart to love Israel, to fawn over them. He could have struck all the Egyptian taskmasters dead. He could have teleported the Israelites directly out of Canaan, directly out of Egypt and into Canaan. All of those things are in his power. 
But instead, he takes this stuttering shepherd out of the middle of nowhere and has that guy lead his people out. Why? It's because weakness magnifies mercy. Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us of this. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's something fitting, something glorifying to God in saving by way of a mediator. That's God's preferred way of doing things. How does he save us? Well, 2,000 years ago, he gave a baby boy to a young girl in a country town in the desert. A couple of weeks ago, I, sh- I shared one of my favorite Christmas hymns online. It's This Little Babe. The lyrics are, are, are powerful. I think they illustrate this point well. The first verse goes this. This little babe, so a few days old, is come to rifle Satan's fold. All held that that his presence quake, though he himself for cold doth shake. For in this weak, unarmed wise, the gates of hell he will surprise. We are saved through weakness. We're saved by mediators. By God sending people down, sending his son and sending other people down to bring us to him. And I think that this is something that we bristle against. Scott Clark is a professor at Westminster Seminary in California. He coined a term for this attitude. He calls it the quest for illegitimate religious experience. It's this desire to have God come to us in the way that we would like him to come to us. In the time of Jesus, that looked like a conquering king who would overthrow the Roman authorities and establish an earthly kingdom. In our context, that looks more like a search for good feelings. That's the greatest religious value of our day is is good feelings. Are they singing the songs that I like? Is the preaching encouraging? Did the right people greet me when I walked in? And none of those things are necessarily inherently bad questions to ask. But it's this quest for an experience, a quest for God to come to us in the way that we would like, on our terms, instead of coming coming to him in the way that he has ordained. And by the way, that can happen just as easily in traditional churches like ours as it does in contemporary megachurches. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God comes to us on his terms through humble means. He saves us through a baby who would go through all the struggles of life, grow up to be a man, to die on a cross. Today, we encounter God when tired sinners like me read and preach from an old book. We encounter God when we we pour a few drops of water on a baby's head. We encounter God when we eat regular bread and drink regular wine. We encounter God when we pray in our house over kids screaming in the background. None of that is particularly glamorous. But neither was Moses, and neither was the Son of God, when his, mother, when his mother placed him in a feed trough. God comes to us through means, and he comes to us humbly. And I hope you understand how freeing that is. God doesn't call you to a life of searching and seeking and struggling. He tells you exactly where he is. And all you have to do is come and receive what he offers. God's mercy is mediated. After darkness, light, post-tenebrous lux. 
That's the promise of the gospel. What's your darkness? Are you burdened by your sin? Are you in a never-ending search for answers? Are you searching for an experience? Are you searching for a to-do list? The promise of Christmas is that the light of Christ can break through your darkness. When Christ came in the flaming bush, Moses' life was changed forever. And when he came in a manger in Bethlehem, the world was changed forever. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of the world has come. Let us rejoice in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.